Good morning and welcome to worship. I love it when the choir brings us and leads us into worship. They are, did an amazing job this morning. We're so glad you're here to worship with us. If you're a visitor, if you take out your blue communication card, fill that out. We'd love to get to know a little bit about you and be able to uh, meet you and, um, and do life with you. If you're a regular attender or a, um, or a member and have a prayer request, fill that out as well. And at the end of the service, we'll take up those cards. If you are a visitor, um, a first-time visitor, we'd love um, to meet you in the back. Pastor Stewart will be back there at the very end to give you a copy of his book, The Privilege of Worship. And we are so glad that you are here. I don't know about you, but I love being in the house of the Lord on Sunday mornings and worshiping with you, our family here at First Baptist Pineville. Please pray with me. God, we know things have been busy this morning. We've probably rushed to get here. But Lord, we pray that we would just be still in your presence this morning. That we would allow you to speak to us. To touch our hearts and to move us into action, Lord God. Through the, the time of worship and song and through your word, God. May we be obedient to whatever it is that you're calling us and telling us to do, Father God. That we would say, yes, Lord. Here am I. I'll do whatever it is you want me to do, Father. And walk in obedience, God. Lord, we thank you for today, and we thank you that we do have a place that we can come and worship you freely. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. It usually helps when you turn the microphone on. Amen. I know this has been a rough week for our church. There have been several funerals, but thank God we're going home to be with Jesus one day. Isn't that a, a great thing to praise the Lord about this morning? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship our Lord, our King of Kings, Jesus. What a name. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.
trust you no matter what our circumstances. You are a God who is mighty to save us.
done so many great things for us. I still remember the day you saved me, the day I heard you call out my name. You said you loved me and would never leave me. pray with me. Father, we say with David that it's good to come in the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Father, you said in your word, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but so much more as, he, as you see the day approaching. Father, one of the best things we've heard today is it's the Lord's day. It's time to go to the house of God, to be together with the children of God, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we come today, Father, to adore you, to worship you, to honor you, to give you praise. Come, Father, confessing with uh, so many in the Bible, Isaiah, that uh, I'm a sinful man, and I come to the presence of holy God. So we come to confess our sins to you and, and pray, Father, for the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from every sin and to separate us from our iniquities as far as the east is from the west and as high as the heavens above the earth. We come to your house, Father, today to thank you for who you are and for what you do, to count our blessings, to name them one by one. We come today, Father, to pray for others. We pray for the sick and the suffering and the sorrowing. Pray, Father, for the lost who have found their way to the cross today. Pray, Father, that you will come now with us as we give to you a portion of that which you've given to us. You said in your word that the gold and silver are yours, that the cattle on a thousand hills are yours, and we don't retain the title. We just retain the stewardship, the, the trusteeship. So we come, Father, today as trustees of your wealth. And you said, Lord, to bring an offering and come into the house of the Lord. So bring, we bring our tithes and offerings to you, and we ask you to take them, Father, not because they're unimportant, because they are important. You said in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Father, we come today, not grudgingly, but cheerfully, so glad we have the opportunity to give. We pray that you'd take our tithes and offerings and the monies, and we pray that you'd use them. We pray that you'd use them right here, Father, to support our ministry and our ministers and our staff. We pray that you'd take it in Jordan 
and supply all the needs of our Sunday school and other organizations of our church. Pray, Father, to take it as we share what you've given us with others with our mainstream mission, then to the cooperative program across our state, across our city, even to LC. Pray, Father, that you'd bless the missionaries who serve you today and who are supported by our tithes and offerings. We pray that you'd bless them. Pray for those especially that have birthdays today, that you'd make it a special day of joy and happiness and celebration. Pray for that, Father, those who, who are separate from the children, and we ask it, Lord, uh, you'd be, give each one of them a, a measure of grace, both the parents and the children. Pray, fa Father, today for our nation, and Lord, how we need your, your presence. We pray, Father, for our embattled presidents, and some people said that there's no way this man would be ever, elect uh, ever elected without the intervention of Almighty God. And Father, we believe you have intervened, and now we say there's no way this man will be able to govern without the intervention of Almighty God. So, Father, we ask of your almighty intervention today. You said in Daniel 4:17, Daniel 5:21, that you're most high God. You rule and reign in the affairs of many nations. You put down one ruler and then raise up another. Father, we submit ourselves to your sovereignty. And it's, if it's our time, the United States of America, to be carried to the graveyard of nations of the 23 civilizations, poor ours, that were carried to that graveyard. Father, we accept you will, except you said, if my people who call by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then while I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Father, that's a game changer. You laid out six conditions of which you will spare our land. And Father, we don't meet them when we just pray. We have all six that we have to meet. So, Father, we ask you for mercy day on our leaders. Pray for our servicemen around the world, those whose lives are in danger now. Pray, Father, that you'd bless us as we assemble today. Pray especially for our pastor that bears such a heavy load. This week he's had four funerals. And, Father, that's a heavy emotional load. It's a heavy uh, spiritual load. So we pray for him especially, Father, that you will undertake by the power and might of your Holy Spirit as he preaches the word of God today. May he preach in the power of your Lord and of our, of our Lord and of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh 
guys great job don't you enjoy it when our students lead us like that we get to have the the Turner kids as part of that uh, one last time I'm glad we have two services so that wasn't necessarily the last last time um, we were talking the other day you see on the front of the worship guide the Turners when they first arrived 
And now, just a picture taken a few weeks ago as they're preparing to leave and you see how much the kids have changed in those years. I remember, I think it was the first Wednesday night we had practice and for some reason, uh, I was helping out with, with uh, Chris and Patty and I took uh, Ryan and Peyton home and they were just little bitty kids. I think Peyton was the age of Zachary, my Zachary back then, about eight years old. And uh, we stopped at Dairy Queen and I said, now your daddy has to do this every Wednesday night on the way home from church. Uh, <laughs> But it's been great to see uh, the kids grow up. It's been wonderful to do ministry with the Turners these last several years. And God has really blessed their ministry. And uh, as I've shared several times, I think the Turner kids have set a great example for those of us with much younger minister kids uh, to look up and to see what it's supposed to be like, that you serve the Lord, you support your parents. And um, yeah, and that's a, a great testimony to Chris and Patty, in fact, uh, the way that their kids love the Lord and serve him and, and serve our church. And so do, uh, we congratulate y'all on that. We're going to miss you guys. Today, we're wrapping up our series on Malachi, and then next week, we're going to begin a new series on the Gospel of John, uh, the question, Jesus, who are you? Which is kind of a foundational question throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus, who are you? Uh, what do you offer and how do I get it? And we're going to get to journey through that gospel throughout uh, this fall. Uh, but for today, we're going to uh, jump back into Malachi. And we're in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. And we're going to continue through the end of the book in chapter 4, verse 6. As we come to the end of Malachi, we are coming to the last of six disputes that um, God has had. And we find, uh, once again, though, that the people are still complaining. And you remember that the people of Malachi's day were well-practiced complainers, whether it was fussing about God not loving them in the first chapter or complaining that they couldn't possibly be as complacent as God found them or griping about evil people seeming to be blessed or throwing up their hands in the air as they do here and saying it's just futile to serve God. These folks were professional complainers. They had gotten good at griping. It was their spiritual gift from another spirit. Uh, complainers, you know, fill the world. Uh, for that matter, matter c complainers fill the church. Uh, there are those people who just seem to be professional complainers. And, and you know it's them when they, they come up to you and say, I don't mean to complain, but... You ever, ever had that if you're in leadership and, and you want to say, yes, you do mean to complain, but go on, fill me in. Uh, some people are rather ridiculous in their complaints. A Reader's Digest article shared some complaints from some travelers to their travel agencies. Listen to these. On my holiday to India, I was disgusted to find that almost every restaurant served curry. I don't like spicy food at all. Then why in the world did you go to India? Following a trip to a national theme park, one angry woman complained that the sun was so hot it melted her ice cream. An air traveler voiced her disapproval of all the clouds in the sky, saying they ruined her child's game of I spy. Some people are just ridiculous in their complaints. And, and you, if you're in business, you get those complaints. If you're a teacher, an administrator in schools, you get those complaints. Uh, we get them in church. Every minister can tell you stories uh, of complaints people have made. I, I actually have a favorite from here that I can't share because the statute of limitations hasn't run out. But my favorite complaint from my last church was a Good Friday 
when a lady who was in charge of the Easter lilies called frantically and said, Pastor, the Easter lilies aren't blooming. And I listened as she said, and she had tried everything. I've tried putting them in the sun. I've tried taking them out of the sun. I've tried putting them cold, putting them in hot. I don't know what to do. They're not going to be blooming for Easter Sunday. What do I do? It's, it's, just, it's just not bad. Those people at Sam's just sold me bad Easter lilies. I just finally said, you know, that's just something we just don't have control over. God's pretty much in charge of when the flowers bloom and, and when they don't. <laughs> While there are those who can cause us to laugh at their complaints. Most people who have the spiritual gift of complaining need to learn to do something else with their time. And this morning, we're going to contrast two groups of people. The first group we'll simply call complainers and the next group uh, we're gonna call proclaimers. The complainers are the gripers who even complain about God and that's where the Israelites were. And the proclaimers are those who share positive things and look to God with faith. And as we consider these two groups, um, we're going to see two truths emerge from Malachi. Uh, Malachi is going to demonstrate to us that from God's perspective, complainers are ignored and proclaimers are adored. So let's consider the first group and their corresponding truth that from God's perspective, complainers are ignored. Look at verses 13 through 15 of chapter 3 of Malachi. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. Have you ever had a friend confront you about something negative that you said about them? It's highly uncomfortable, isn't it? It's one of those moments when the hair kind of stands up on the back of your neck and you get a knot in your stomach because you're busted. This is someone you love and you've hurt them. Well, what if that friend was God? Did you notice the opening statement is from God himself? You have said harsh things against me. I mean, if God said that to you, a cold chill would move over your body, wouldn't it? And I think that probably happened to the Israelites too. But instead of fessing up, they began their cover-up. And so they immediately act shocked. What have we said against you? That's been their response to all of these disputes and complaints that God's had again. What? Me? Who? What? How? How have we done this? The Israelites actually thought they had done nothing wrong. People who rebel against God often regard God as the offender and themselves as innocent victims. Sin dulls our consciences, it hardens our hearts, it blurs our vision. And so God steps in to help them understand what they have done. In verses 14 through 15, God quotes what they've been saying. That they're saying, it's futile to serve God. And as these complainers got together, they criticized God in these ways. It's futile to serve God. What did we gain by following him? Now the arrogant are blessed. And as these complainers got together, they, they just griped about God. Maybe for some it was in their social gatherings. For others, it may have been at work. But when they got with other people, they griped about God. 
Now, that may seem harmless enough, but this griping about God was actually a way of taking the name of the Lord in vain. You know, you don't have to curse or use God's name in a curse to take his name in vain. You can take God's name in vain by falsely accusing God or slandering his character. And that's what these people were doing. Three times in this book, Malachi blames the people for belittling, belittling God with their words. He did it at the first time in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he asked them where the honor was that should be due his name. Then in chapter 2, verse 17, he says they were wearing him out with their griping. And then now in chapter 3, he says they're griping about serving him. And so notice that each time as Malachi moves through this book, the people's wrongdoing grows more serious. First they questioned God, then they were just wearing him out, and now they're finally speaking harshly against him to others. And isn't that how complaining goes? The more you complain, the worse it gets. First, you gripe about a little aggravation. Then as you stew on that a little while, it gets a little worse. And then finally, things come out of your mouth that are truly hurtful and harmful. And the Israelites were now bringing serious and hurtful accusations against God. Basically, they said it was useless to serve God. Now, they were right in one sense. Because they hadn't put their hearts into it, their worship was proving useless their prayers were kind of hitting the ceiling. People worship in vain when they draw near to God, but their lips and their hearts are far from him. And that's what the people were doing. But on the other hand, God rewards those who didn't diligently seek him. So the people griped. What have we gained for keeping God's requirements and walking mournfully before him? And notice something about their question. It reveals their false Humility. They were obeying God not out of love for him, but out of what they could get. You see their question? What have we gained by following God? Be careful when you ask the question, what's in it for me? What can I gain out of this? You see, we don't serve God to get more. We serve God because we've already received more than we deserve. Now, God's anger over their complaining doesn't mean that, that God doesn't consider our frustrations and our heartaches. It, it doesn't mean he could care less about what we think. He really does care. He wants us to open up to him. The, the sheer fact that there are dozens of psalms where people lament or complain to God is an indicator of that. But see, there's a big difference in what those psalmists are doing in their laments or what Jeremiah does in lamentations and what these Israelites were doing with their griping. See, the Israelites were simply griping. <laughs> That's all they did, complain, complain, complain. Whereas a lament begins with a complaint, it begins with a complaint, a gripe with God. God, where are you? I'm crying out to you and you do not seem to hear me. But a lament always moves to an affirmation of trusting God and then praise of God. And so, whereas a lament might begin, God, where are you? I'm, I'm not hearing from you. It moves to, but I know you're still there and I trust you to answer in time. So when you need to lament, 
because you don't understand what God is doing in your life, that's fine. Let him have it with both barrels. He's a big boy and he can take it. But just be sure that you then move back to trusting God and praise of God. Don't do what these people were doing. And instead of moving to praise and trust, they just moved deeper and deeper into gripe and disgust. And if you end up being disgusted with God, then you're destined for ruin. Why ruin? Because God ignores the complainers. He listens. He calls them out. But he doesn't answer them. So check yourself in your complaining to God and even your complaining about other things. Someone who's written extensively on complaining said this, Complaining is like bad breath. You notice it when it comes out of somebody else's mouth, but not your own. <laughs> so check yourself carefully. Complainers make up the first group and give us our first truth. The second group are the proclaimers. And they give us our second truth, which is from God's perspective, proclaimers are adored. You see, anybody can complain. It is the easiest thing to do. You don't have to be smart. You don't even have to be observant. You just have to be negative. It takes no effort to complain about anything. So God describes this second group of proclaimers in a special way because you see, it takes effort to proclaim, especially when you're in a difficult time like these people in Malachi's day were. Look at what God says of these people, these proclaimers in verses 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Do you catch the completely different feel to God's words here? It's just like the way you relate to someone who proclaims instead of complains. You want the proclaimers close. You want the complainers away. That's because the proclaimers build up, whereas the complainers tear down. Well, here God singles out the proclaimers as a special group. And as we've journeyed through Malachi, we found that the Israelites were, were doing a lot of wrong. They were far from God. They were unfaithful. But within that unfaithful group, God points out this faithful remnant. Do you know that anywhere God's people go astray, there is always a faithful remnant? That can be in a family. It can be in a church. It can be in a denomination. It can be in a nation. God always has a remnant. One of the most amazing stories and moving stories about a remnant comes from 1 Kings during the times of the prophet Elijah. Elijah had a very difficult ministry and he reached a point where he actually thought that everyone was against him and he was the only person in the entire realm who loved God. And he was just depressed about it and complaining to God and thinking that he was all alone and God, though, comes to him and he knew better. And he says, Elijah... There's a remnant of 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to the false god Baal. 
But you're not alone. I always have a faithful remnant. Remember, whenever the days seem darkness, God always has some who retain their integrity, who retain their zeal, who retain their love, and who retain their respect for him. And so notice then what the faithful remnant does. They speak to one another. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other. So while the complainers were complaining to each other, the proclaimers are proclaiming to each other. While the complainers said, it's futile to serve God. What are we getting out of this? The proclaimers talk about God's mercy and God's goodness and God's faithfulness. As the proclaimers talked, notice God listened. He took notice. Yeah, he heard both groups, but he has a completely different reaction to the proclaimers. He listens and he hears them. The words didn't just pass through God's ears. They touched his mind and heart as well. He listened and he heard. He was moved to action. As they praised, God came to their aid. If you want God to come into your aid, you need to go into praise. Because praise ushers you into the presence of God. Psalm 100 verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. When you proclaim, God takes notice. He listens. He cares. He sends help. His faithfulness will even continue to the next generation. Now notice... That not only did God listen and hear the people, but he also had a scroll of remembrance written about them. We see in verse 16. This, this calls to mind where the ancient kings of, of old had a record of the good works of their supporters. So these supporters could be given proper recognition. You may remember the story from the book of Esther where uh, the king had it written down about Malachi's good deed to him, which then ended up saving Malachi later on. Numerous places in scripture refer to a record that's kept in heaven. The most notable reference is the one in Isaiah 49, 16, where God says, look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Not just a book, but right here with me all the time. Isn't that a wonderful thought? If you're a proclaimer, God has you right here. He hears you, he listens to you, he adores you, he remembers you. He says, write that person's name down. I want them close. I want to remember them. I want to bless them. Now, of course, God doesn't need a record to remember. His memory's not like ours. It's perfect. He doesn't have to send himself emails to remember to do something. He knows all and his memory never falters. But the mention here of the record kept in heaven it's not really for God's benefit. It was for the people of Malachi's day's benefit. It's not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit that those who look to his words and his heart will be remembered. God will never forget. We can sing about we will remember, but God declares he will always remember. Doesn't the fact that God writes a book of remembrance for those who follow him motivate you? In a day when Christians are increasingly maligned and criticized and ostracized and even persecuted, doesn't it help to know that God remembers your faithfulness? So let's see. So far, God says he's going to adore the proclaimers by hearing and listening to them. He's going to remember them 
But in verse 17, we see that he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, they will be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I'm going to spare them. Not only will he hear and listen, not only will he remember, but he's going to make the proclaimers his treasured possession. Underline that statement because it's important. Treasured possession translates a Hebrew word, sagula, that's used only eight times in the Old Testament. Twice it occurs in reference to a king's private treasure. And the other six times, God applies the word to the Israelites as his special possession as he does here. The background of this word is kind of interesting. It comes from a practice of the kings in the ancient world where, you know, a king ultimately owned everything in his kingdom. I mean, there was nothing that he didn't own. And that kind of ownership can get a little blasé at times. If you own everything, nothing's really special. There's nothing you want to seek because you have it all. There's nothing that you really are wanting to take special because you have it all. And so what these kings would do is they would keep a special sagula, a special treasure with certain precious stones and gold and objects of art, things that they had collected maybe in their, their crusades and those things that they valued most highly. And they'd put those away in a special place where they could go and look at those achievements that were separated from everything else in the kingdom. Well, in the same way, God, to whom all nations belong and every person belongs, looks on the faithful of Israel as his peculiar treasure, his sagula, his treasured possession. And it's interesting that that same idea can also be found in the New Testament, which is the inheritance to those of us belonging to Christ, that we are his treasured possession as well. We have a special relationship with our Lord. Christians are our Lord's special possessions as well. Isn't it great to think that you can be God's treasured possession? That oh, though he owns everything, he's excited about you. Though he knows everything you've ever done, he's excited about you. Has that ever come to rest in your heart? Has there ever been the point where you realize that you could come to the end of yourself and that you realize that God wanted to take you in as his treasured possession? Where you realize that he could take your sins away and he could bring you into his family? Where you say, Lord, I confess my sins to you. I turn from them in repentance. I trust you as my Lord and Savior. I give you my life. I hope that if you've never made that most important decision, that today would be the day that you do that. Because you see, until you move from the complainer group to the proclaimer group, you're missing out. Because even though the Lord hears and listens to the proclaimers, he remembers the proclaimers, he holds the proclaimers as a special treasure, there's still more that God will do. In fact, as he continues on in verse 17, he says he's going to have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. The, the, world, uh, the word compassion often has as its object a person or group that's threatened by imminent danger, unable to deliver itself, and then someone else comes in and helps them. It's the same word that's used in Exodus of Pharaoh's daughter when she had compassion on the baby Moses when he floated up there in the Nile. So the compassion of God reminds us that like baby Moses in the Nile, we cannot deliver ourselves, but God can deliver us. 
He listens and hears the proclaimers. He remembers them. He holds them as a treasured possession. He has compassion on them. No doubt, God adores those who proclaim his name. And don't you want to be a a proclaimer instead of a complainer? Well, in case you're still not convicted, let's briefly consider the distinction between the two. Verse 18 sets up chapter 4. Originally, it continued one to the next. He says, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Listen up, Malachi is saying, that the, the destinies of the righteous and the wicked are absolutely starkly in contrast to one another. You may not be able to tell the difference now, but you will on the day of the Lord. And he says, surely the day is coming It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. Not so good, is it? The wicked will be burned up like stubble. Have you ever passed by a field that's being burned off after the harvest? So it shall be on the day of the Lord. Burned up like stubble. But the righteous have a completely different outcome in verse 2. But you, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. We have a beautiful sunrise. And you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. The coming day will not only remove the wicked, it's going to heal the righteous. For the righteous are going to see the sun of righteousness rise with healing on its wings. And the idea of wings represents the rays of the sun bathing the earth with light like God's rays are bathing us with his light such a transformation brings abundant joy as Malachi likens it to a calf that's been shut up in the barn and then finally the door is released and he can run out into the pasture anybody grow up on a farm and you remember that kind of image Those little calves, they're excited to stretch and they run and they frolic and they jump and they play. And he says, that's what it's going to be like for those who follow me. The wicked's going to be no more and you're going to rejoice. You're going to go out with joy and you're going to declare your freedom from sin, your freedom from death. You're now living in the presence of God. It's going to be great. And Malachi then goes on to describe when that day is going to come. In verse 5, he says, there's going to be a prophet. Elijah, who's going to come before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, the New Testament writers identified John the Baptist as that one who would be like the prophet Elijah who came right before Christ, ushering in then Christ's first coming and eventually the second coming of Christ in the day of the Lord. Jesus did and is still doing today what Malachi says in the first part of verse 6. He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Many of us here today have had our hearts turned to Christ. And many of you may need to have your heart turned to Christ today. Because it's very dreadful if we don't turn. For verse 6 ends this way after the semicolon. He says, or else... I will come and strike the land with a curse. And that's the end of the Old Testament. Isn't it interesting that the Old Testament ends with the word 
curse. You might circle that. You might underline it because you don't want to forget it. It reminds us that the Old Testament is not complete. The Old Testament is like the first movie of a trilogy or the first book of a trilogy. You finish and you're like, okay, something else has got to be coming. This is an awful ending to the movie. You walk out, throw the popcorn and drink in the trash can. Golly, I'm never going to. Got to wait three years to see the next what happens. We'll try 400 years, right? <laughs> you end thinking, curse, this can't be. The good news is because it's not. There's something else coming. The New Testament is the wonderful continuation of God's interest in you and me and the world and all of humanity. And that story, that story of the New Testament ends far different than the story of the Old Testament. In Revelation 22, verse 21, the very last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, it says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people Amen. Now that's how you end a story. The Old Testament ends with curse. The New Testament ends with amen. So be it. But it can end with amen because of that earlier word in verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's you another word to circle Because God extends his grace to you and to me. Complainers by nature. Sinful by nature. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. He extended his love to us. We deserve death for our sins, but God offered the gift of eternal life. Why? Because he loved us. He loved us first and he loved us best. And so this morning, I want to ask you, have you ever trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If not, I want to give you an opportunity to do so today. And so if everyone would bow their heads and close their eyes, let me just ask you to do a little self-searching right now. Has there ever been a point in your life where you have realized that you needed Jesus Christ to come and save you of your sins? Have you realized that you were a sinner and have you come to Jesus and said, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but I also know that you died on the cross for my sins. For you see, the wages of sin is death. So what we deserve for what we do in sin is eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God extends to us the gift and all we have to do to receive it is to repent of our sins and to receive that gift from his hands. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You don't have to get everything fixed up before you come to him. He fixes it up after you come to him. And so this morning, I want to give you that opportunity to trust Jesus. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you want to do that today, then I'd encourage you to pray a simple prayer, something like this. There's no magic in the words, but... Just simply believe it in your heart. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you died on the cross for my sins. I receive you today as my Lord and Savior. And I want to walk with you throughout the rest of my life. If you pray a prayer simple like that, then the the word tells us that you're saved. You're changed from this day forward.
And so I encourage you to make that decision today. And if you did pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart in just a few moments when we stand and sing a song of invitation, I encourage you to come forward and to let me know, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. I'm a follower of Jesus now. We're going to record that information. We'll talk to you about following through with baptism whenever we're able to do that. And then we'll introduce you to the church and we'll celebrate with you together as a church family. Lord Jesus, we thank you for speaking to us this morning. We pray, God, that we would walk with you all the days of our lives, that we'd be proclaimers and not complainers. I pray for those who prayed to trust you this morning, that they would uh, be free to step out and come forward and let this congregation know of their decision to trust you. There may be others, God, in this room who want to come and be a part of our church family, others who may need to just seek you where they are here at the front, just lifting up to you their concerns in prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that you're with us, seeking your face, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing, may you follow the Lord's leading in your life today.